Brian Stevenson's 2014 New York Times bestseller, Just Mercy, has been compared to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. This bestseller chronicles the true story of Stevenson's attempts to vindicate those in our criminal justice system who have been wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, many sentenced to death row, and some even executed. Stephen himself, a Harvard graduate, has made it his life's mission to fight for and advocate for those who have been wrongly accused and convicted. Walter McMillan, a man featured in Just Mercy, is such a man. Wrongly accused and convicted of a 1986 murder and sentenced to death in Alabama courts. And until Stevenson, through this nonprofit, was introduced to McMillan, Walter McMillan had no voice, no advocate, and no ability to prove his innocence in a court of law. It's an ugly truth that for far too long and far too often in our country, one of Macmillan's greatest obstacles to overcome is the color of his skin. Walter Macmillan, the time of his conviction, was a young black man. And I wonder if you can imagine with me for just a moment, imagine the feeling of knowing that you are innocent of whatever you've been accused of but also knowing that you are completely and totally incapable and unable to vindicate yourself. Alone in your thoughts to ponder your plight, discouraged by a broken system, distraught by those who you thought once were your friends who have now given ear that perhaps you are indeed guilty of that which you've been accused isolated from the comforts of home and the closeness of family. Friends, this is a bleak, these are bleak and dire circumstances. And perhaps most of us can't identify with those feelings. But as we turn our attention back to the Psalms again this morning, we find David experiencing feelings similar to what I trust Walter McMillan must have felt in 1986 and for the six years that he spent on death row. The exact circumstances of Psalm 17 aren't told to us, but we know well from our study in 1 Samuel that David spent a lot of time on the run, fearing for his life at the jealous hands of then King Saul. And as you may recall in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we learned that from the day that that David defeats Goliath and the people are praising the works of God through the hands of David, Saul's heart is set against David. Not just in hatred, but the scriptures tell us that Saul eyed David from that day forward. And we're meant to cue in there that Saul's desire from that day forward in hatred and in jealousy and hard-heartedness was he wanted to see David's life ruined and ended. He wanted to kill him. And in Psalm 17, we find David facing intense opposition from those seeking to do him harm and to kill him. 
David is unable and incapable of vindicating himself from his enemies who are relentlessly pursuing him. But it also seems from our psalm that David is actually uninterested in seeking to vindicate himself. He's looking to God to vindicate him. And for those that may be less familiar with that terminology, vindication or to vindicate, it simply means to clear or to justify, to uphold according to evidence. So keep that in mind because we're going to go back to this idea of vindication throughout the sermon. You know, many of the Psalms are written with different literary tools. One of those is called a chiasm. And rather than get too far off in the weeds about what a chiasm is or get you a diagram, I thought we might illustrate it with a couple of examples. And then I want to draw your attention to a couple of things I hope will be helpful as we look at this psalm together. So this is going to be um, the interactive portion of the sermon. So I'll give you the first half and you're going to respond with the second half. I think you'll catch on. So let's give it a whirl. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's right. So that is in a sense, a chiasm, where the statement or argument that is begun is then flipped in reverse order and stated back. So we heard it. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. All right, let's try another one. You're doing great. You're one for one. Second example, a little more tricky. When you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Fantastic. All right, so this particular psalm, not all chiasms do this, but this particular psalm has a center point of that verse. So if you think what we just said, if you plan to fail, then you plan to fail. I mean, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. Uh, In the middle there, verses 7 through 9 sort of operate as our axis point with the greatest importance of emphasis for understanding the entire psalm. So as we read here in just a minute, I want you to keep your eye on that. Also, I want you to notice the contrast, much like those two examples we just gave as we read chapter uh, Psalm 17 together. If you don't have a Bible with you, and in this season we're not providing Bibles in the seat back, then you can turn to your worship God on page 9, and the sermon text is listed there. So with that, let's go to Psalm 17 together, and let me read for us. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. 
Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This psalm of David is noted in that introduction as a prayer. In fact, it's the first prayer we find in the Psalter. It's a prayer of protection. So David is crying out to God for protection, for vindication, for help. And I think if you want a one-sentence summary of this psalm, I think we could agree at the end of our time that a one-sentence summary is this. God's vindication comforts his people and condemns his enemies. God's vindication comforts his people and condemns his enemies. And our main idea is going to serve as our outline So point number one, God's vindication comforts his people. We're going to primarily see that in verses one through nine. And just a heads up for you note takers, each point will have two sub points. So point number one, God's vindication comforts his people. We're going to see that first in David's cry. Sub point number one, David's cry, verses one through five. Subpoint number two, David's comfort in verses six through nine. I'll give these to you again as we go, but I'll go ahead and tell you the two subpoints for point number two as well. God's vindication condemns his enemies, verses 10 through 15. Subpoint number one under point two, David's case, verses 10 through 12, and David's contentment, verses 13 through 15. So with that, let's turn then. To point number one, God's vindication comforts his people. First, we'll look at David's cry. I want to read again verses one through five. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So in this prayer, while we don't know for certain the circumstances that have led to David crying out to God for protection, what we do know is that David is desperately crying out to God for help. And upon first reading, perhaps maybe as you've read this week, You could look at that and it seems maybe as if David is praying as one who thinks of himself to be sinless. But we know that not to be the case. In fact, just last week in that glorious psalm that Ryan Trogman led us through in verse 2 of chapter 16, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In fact, the psalms are filled with prayers and statements of total dependence on the goodness of God, not the goodness of man. So a more faithful reading 
would be that David is proclaiming his innocence in the face of the opposition he's facing. So he's not sinless, but rather the reasons his enemies are pursuing him, he's innocent in those matters. So they're seeking to do him harm, not because of something he's done, but because of their own arrogance, their own sinfulness, their own hard-heartedness. If we were able to look together to the way the Hebrew reads in verse 1, where we have translated, hear a just cause, the Hebrew actually reads, hear righteousness. Hear righteousness. So though we also see David understands there's only one who is righteous in this interaction, for he uses the covenant name of God there in the text. You see, Lord in all caps, that's that covenant name, Yahweh. The name used to speak of God as the covenant-keeping God of his people, a people he made for himself. So we then are to see David appealing to God more like God spoke of Job to Satan whenever Job is allowed to be sifted by Satan. In Job chapter 1 verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, we know Job wasn't sinless, but before the Lord, as he sought to be obedient, God considered him a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. So as we look to verse 2, we get a, a more full picture of what David is asking for from God. He's asking God to vindicate him against his enemies who speak falsely, accuse falsely, and pursue his life vigilantly for, vigilantly for the purpose of taking it. One who sees themselves as sinless doesn't need to be vindicated. So David cries out, Lord, you are the righteous one. You are the one who judges fairly. You are the one alone who can vindicate, both in this moment and finally. Hear righteousness, verse 1. Let your eyes behold the right, verse 2. Then we see further in verses 3 through 5 that David argues his case before a righteous judge, that God as the righteous and right judge should hear his cry, boldly going before the Lord, not arrogantly, but humbly. Look with me at verses three through five. David says, the Lord has tried his heart and tested him and found nothing. The phrase visited me by night is alluding to the fact that alone in our thoughts in the wee hours of the night, we are most likely to transgress and sin, either in fear, in boredom, in anger, in impatience. In fact, some have said nothing good happens after midnight. I have a few in my house that would argue this point as a recent late night trip to Waffle House provided bacon and waffles after midnight. <laughs> Pastor Matt Chandler, once speaking to a group of men, said there's nothing more dangerous than a bored man alone in his thoughts with time to kill. So David here the Lord has tried his heart, has visited him by night, he's tested him, and David's response back to the Lord is, and you found nothing. So he had purposed then with his mouth in the second half of verse 3 that he would not transgress. So here David uses contrast to show that he's not like his enemies, where they have transgressed the Lord's word, uh, for, for David is, is God's anointed, 
but he's not yet the king. He's being pursued as a criminal. Saul, who once was God's anointed, still sitting as king, is transgressing and no longer listening to his word, no longer experiencing the favor of God, and he's given himself fully over to sin. In verse 4, we see, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. And again, we're meant to see the contrast that David's being pursued, though innocent, is continuing to trust in the Lord and his word and his ways. And this is the exact same thing that's meant in verse 5 when David says, his feet have held, have held, held fast to the path. They have not slipped. You all remember back in our study, perhaps in 1 Samuel in chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David had opportunity to take matters into his own hands and to end this pursuit of Saul of David by taking Saul's life. But David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed. It's not for me to vindicate myself. I won't do it. Why? Because David was trusting in the Lord. David was trusting in God's ways, God's timing, God's purposes and he understood it not to be his to take so he would not enter into the ways of the violent that's what he means so I believe David understood that while he is and has been pursued by his enemies his protection has been at the hand of the Lord his holding fast is the Lord's doing and his feet not slipping is God's keeping this isn't David girding up his own strength and doing all this on his own no he's completely and wholly dependent on God and if in fact this psalm is referring to Saul as David's enemy then Saul and his men are pursuing the Lord's anointed and they have taken up the ways of the violent so David maintains and pleads his innocence before a righteous judge before holy God. But note, before he ever asked the Lord for anything other than hear a just cause and let my vindication come, before he really gets into the actual petition, he goes before the Lord having examined himself and asking the Lord to do the same. David, even as his enemies surround him, we know in verse 11, thinks carefully about the way, the manner in which he enters into God's presence. He examines his own heart to see if there's anything in him that he ought to repent of, that he ought to confess, that he ought to deal with before he makes his appeal to the Lord. And I pray that that's been convicting for you as it has been for me this week. What about you? Do you pray like this? Do you think carefully about the condition of your own heart before you approach the throne of grace? Do you believe the Lord even hears, or if he does, does he care? What would your prayer life say? Do you pray at all, or do you seek to take matters into your own hands? Are you more like David, or are you more like David's enemies? Do you pray for or even with other members? Or do you only pray for your own needs? Do you go to the Lord first in praise and adoration of a holy God? Or do you go to the Lord first telling him what you need him to do for you? Like a genie in a bottle. Do you pray for those who don't yet know 
the saving name of Jesus Christ. Robert Murray McShane said famously, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. David seems to be proving himself to be a man wholly dependent on God to act. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you that God invites us, he hears us, and he answers us according to his plan. So we should pray, and we should trust, and we should watch, and we should wait on the Lord, regardless of our circumstance. So David's cry, or his prayer, is to the covenant-keeping God, who alone can vindicate on the basis of his own character, And on David's behalf, he is innocent. David is innocent in the matter that's causing his enemies to pursue him. So David's cry is to the Lord. Let's turn now and look at verses 6 through 9. Consider our second subpoint: David's comfort. This section of the psalm opens with David having proclaimed his innocence, having searched his own heart, mind, and actions, appealing to God on the basis of his, of God's character and his divine love. Verse 6, he says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear, hear my words. So if David is appealing to God on anything other than God's own righteousness, then this prayer is anything but brazen. But it's not brazen, rather it's full of humility, it's contrite, it is introspective, it is holy, it is a righteous prayer of a man trusting in God's power, God's timing. And I think we're meant to see that like a father who listens intently to the words of his children, if he deems it wise to grant their request, but before the appeal is ever made, every dad knows or every mom knows, or every aunt or uncle knows, that phrase that comes from that child, hey dad, or hey mom, or hey aunt so-and-so, it's just the voice of the child that makes the heart desire to hear the appeal. Remember in verse 1, David called out God by his covenant name, Yahweh? And I think the, the point here is that David is appealing to God here in verse 1 as the covenant-keeping God and in verse 6 as the God of the universe, the one who formed it, who sustains it, who holds it together, who will judge it. But then we look and see that center section that I told you about in the introduction in verses 7 through 9. Let me read that for us. Wondrously show... Your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So David says in verse 7, wondrously show. He's calling on God, on God to act in history just as he have, has always on behalf of his people. So let's just briefly recall a few of those ways in which God has acted on behalf of his people throughout history, right? From, from, uh, from nobody, really, David, I mean, uh, God made a people for himself through the lineage of Abraham. Okay, he protected his people when the angel of death passed over their houses as they were in captivity in Egypt. He led them out of, the, out of Egypt 
But not only did he lead them out of Egypt, they were given food and provision as they left Egypt. As they're fleeing Egypt, they pass through on dry land through the Red Sea in safekeeping. He provided for them in the wilderness with manna that came from heaven. He gave them a promised land that was rich. And we could keep going on and on and on in the ways in which God has taken care of and provided for his people. The point is that God's people have always and will always find refuge in him and his wondrous works. Wondrously show what? David says, wonderfully show your steadfast love. Again, drawing on the covenant-keeping love of God to his people. But to who specifically? David says, to all who seek refuge in you. And I think we're meant to see here that God is our refuge and we can shelter in his care. But perhaps more than that. The phrases in verse 8 and verse 7, the apple of your eye, the shadow of your wings, these are really meant to draw our attention in verses 7 and 8 to two songs of Moses that David would have known in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The apple of the eye alludes to the pupil or the centermost portion of the eye. And when something comes at your eye, you instinctively turn your head or you close your eye or you put up your hands. Similarly, the, the, the shadow of your wings is meant to give the imagery of, of, a, of protection, of a bird that covers wings over its young. I want us to see briefly that David is appealing to God to act in the present as he has in the past. And if God can be trusted to act on behalf of his people in the past, then David is calling on God to do so again in the present because God keeps his promises. And our English translations really don't pick up word for word the way this translation, but the sense is there. So in verse 7, David uses the same words that Moses uses in Exodus 15, 11 through 13, that first song of Moses we're going to look at. And I want you to key in on those phrases and the ideas from verse 7 of wondrously show a steadfast love in God's right hand. And in Exodus 15, verses 11 to 13, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds or wondrous deeds, doing wonders, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by the strength of your holy abode. And then similarly, over in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, looking at verse 8 in Psalm 17, it says, He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with them. And it continues on about the protection of God. And I read that because the way that this psalm is structured, with 7 through 9 being sort of that center point, is it helps us to understand that from verse 1 to verse 15, what David is doing is appealing to a God who keeps his covenant with his people, who asks God to act in the present just as God has acted in the past for the sake of his own name and for the sake of his people. And if we understand that, then we get more of a, of a window, of a picture, of even David's boldness in the way he petitions God to hear him in verse 6. 
He says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. He's not shaking his fist and saying, you will do this for me. He's saying, God, because I trust you, I trust that because you've acted in salvation, because you've acted in, in the history past, you will act in history present and you will vindicate yourself and you will vindicate your people. God is, is allowing David to remember back on history at God's preservation of his people, wondrously acting on their behalf. David's very comfort is the character of God, God who does not and will not and cannot break his promises. And again, I wonder, what about you? Where is your comfort this morning in the midst of difficulty, hardships or trials, calamity, or even as Ryan prayed in the pastoral prayer, what about in plenty, in those times of when things are good? Where is your comfort? And these words of David now turn from making his case of innocence and asking God to protect him to his mounting case against his enemies. So knowing that God, the righteous judge, sees all, he knows all, he always has and he always will vindicate his people, is David's comfort. But David cannot and will not vindicate himself because he knows God will do the vindication. He will do the vindicating. And while I trust David doesn't know exactly how or when or how all this is going to play out, his confidence is resolute. It is no less, he's no less trusting in the covenant-keeping nature of his God. And for us, there is no greater comfort in this life than to trust in the sovereign hand of God who always keeps his promises. Because if God failed to keep even one of those promises, he would fail or cease to be God. Our second point, God's vindication condemns his enemies. As I mentioned in the intro, just like our first point, we're going to look at David's prayer in two subpoints. First, David's case in verses 10 through 12, and then second, David's contentment in verses 13 through 15. So first, let's look at David's case in verses 10 through 12. Let's read that. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. And again, we're, our, our mind's eye ought to be drawn to the, contact, the contrast that we see right before us. That David is standing before God, claiming his innocence, and yet at the same time pointing God to the callous arrogance of his enemies. So whereas David's heart was tried and tested and nothing found, his mouth did not transgress. He avoided the ways of the violent. His feet didn't slip. By contrast, we learn that his enemies, they've closed their hearts to pity. They speak arrogantly. They surround God's anointed. And here, the pronoun changes from, changes to our instead of me. And as not to get tripped up on that, I think it's, as we see even in Samuel, David often had company around him. So it doesn't change the meaning, whether it's me or our in this instance. The point is that David's enemies are pursuing him for the purpose of taking his life. And they would have taken his life and the life of all those that would have been in his company. 
They close their hearts to pity. They speak arrogantly. They surround God's anointed. They set their eyes to cast them down to the ground. They're like a, a lion eager to tear, like a lion waiting in ambush. So David's enemies are at every turn presented as the opposite of David as the two stand before the righteous judge. And as Christians, this too ought to regularly mark our lives. We ought to be concerned when we are more comfortable or we look more like the things of this world rather than look like strangers in it. John brought our attention in the early hour. Jesus' own words. John chapter 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever so David appeals to God on the basis of God's character and his present right standing before God and then he builds his case to God highlighting highlighting his enemy's disobedience and their hard-heartedness towards that holy covenant-keeping God And this makes them not only David's enemies, but also God's enemies. And this is what we're to see in the imagery that David gives in his description. They close their hands to pity. They're heartless. Their mouths speak arrogantly. Whereas David, uh, back up in verse 4, obeyed the words of God's lips. He didn't act in violence. Now in verse 10, their mouths speak arrogantly. They set their eyes cast down to the ground they're set to do violence they are not open to hearing the voice of the lord they want what they want now and brothers and sisters we're to find comfort that our enemies as we seek to be obedient to god are also god's enemies that he's the righteous judge and he will judge all according to their deeds And David's enemies in this psalm have set themselves against God. But brothers and sisters, remember that we too once were enemies of God and subject to his judgment. We were not friends of God, but enemies. That's the nature of the passage that we read in our scripture reading in 2 Peter today. And David can make such a claim as he's looking forward to the righteous one who would fulfill all the promises of God, one who would be similarly unjustly accused unjustly pursued by his enemies. Only this one, the righteous one, would be unjustly tried and crucified for your sake and for mine. That Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the the visit, excuse me, the image of the invisible God, that God, because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his perfect righteous son to be born a baby, to be raised up a man, to be tempted in every way that we're tempted. And yet he, without sin, endured in obedience to his father a death that you and I deserve. He willingly laid down his life, taking upon himself the sin and all the wrath of God so that sin could once and for all be satisfied. 
because death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. So David was looking forward to salvation history, to the promise of one who would be born from his lineage of whose kingdom would never end. And Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And only through Christ do we have hope to be satisfied in his likeness. Because when Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death, he gave you and I the opportunity to become sons and daughters of the most high and holy God. If we would confess our sins and repent, turn from walking in our own ways, and instead walk in his ways, seeking to be obedient to him as David is seeking to be obedient to God in this passage. The Bible tells us that all will be judged, but only those who've repented from their sins and placed their hope and faith and trust in God will be saved from the wrath of God. For all of those like David's enemies in this life, they're going to be satisfied with only whatever they can amass for themselves in this world. But the Bible's also clear that the judgment that awaits is far worse than anything we can imagine. So just as heaven's joys, I trust, are far greater than anything we can hope or imagine, as we are in the presence and the glory of God experiencing his favor and his blessing and his praise unending, full inheritance as children, just as that is higher than are our thoughts, so too is God's judgment in hell far worse than anything we can imagine, where the presence of the wrath of God never ceases and never relents and friends if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian let me tell you we are so glad that you're here this morning and we understand that life is full of difficulties and I don't pretend to know yours in full but I do know this that God's word tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way and that Jesus Christ was a man acquainted with sorrow he knows your hurt and he cares. And my encouragement to you was that you would stop seeking to be God and stop dismissing God. And instead you would turn from your sin and surrender your life in obedience to God the Father. And that you would find protection as the apple of his eye. That you would find protection under the shadow of his wings. If that's you this morning... Gosh, we'd love to visit with you after the service. You can often find many of our elders down front. Um, there usually are elders out front at a tent that we've set up for visitors to be able to connect with us. We'd love to talk with you more about that. And Christian, what about you? Are you hoping in the things of this world? Have you some circumstance, some burden, some predicament that has you confused about where your hope lies this morning and what leads you there? Let me encourage you, cry out to God. Call on the name of the Lord in faith and trust the God of your salvation. Rest secure in the shadow of his wings. Rest confident in God's ability to vindicate you and to judge his enemies. Look with me at subpoint number two, David's contentment in verses 13 to 15. I think we're meant to see here that David need not seek to do what he could never do, for he cannot vindicate himself any more so than you or I can vindicate ourselves. 
He's content knowing that God will vindicate and God's vindication will heap judgment on his enemies. God will always vindicate his own name for he will not share his glory with another. Verses 13 to 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Again, we're meant to note the contrast between David and his enemies. So arise, O Lord. He again calls on the covenant name of God. He says, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, or Yahweh, whose portion is in this world, you fill their womb with treasure. The sense here is given is to give them over fully to what satisfies them. Heap on them their fill of what they crave. Whatever this world can give them and the illusion of satisfaction, give them over to that. And in our mind's eye is the warning that the sins of one generation are passed down to the next, that folly begets folly, except for the unmerited grace of God that has the power to break sin. So let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you come from a home and you're a first-generation Christian, praise God because you have an opportunity to break a legacy of unbelief to your children and to your children's children through the example that you set as a follower of Christ. Don't hear me saying that because you're a Christian, your children and your children's children will be Christians. But do hear me say, Praise God for a gospel witness that goes forward from a house that moves from unbelief to belief, where the Bible is upheld as God's authority, where grace is heralded, where mercy is extended to one another, and where God's glory is put on display. In verse 14, be the image, the imagery of the satisfaction with their children and that they leave their abundance to their infants. I believe David is issuing a warning of the legacy of one's life that they leave to their children. So the vindication of God that comforts his people is passed down in a spiritual inheritance of a life well lived to the next generation, not as an extension of salvation, but as a stone of remembrance. So our testimonies are meant not to point us to the, to the glorious goodness of ourselves, but to the glorious goodness of God. So when you share your testimony, make much of Jesus Christ and make little of your sin And of yourself. What marks your life? What would others say? If you're a parent this morning. What would your kids say marks your life? Is it a love of some hobby that you have? Or a love even of your spouse. Over that of your covenant keeping. Promise keeping God. What about your friends? What would they say? Would they say gosh when I'm with this person. I'm encouraged in my faith. And the idleness of our time. Doesn't produce things that look like the world rather it produces things that that omit the aroma of Christ what marks your life I think this is why as church members we should seek to speak evidences of grace to one another to say hey this may be a difficult time that you're going through I don't know all the circumstances but I do know this the Lord is using you to show me this or your words encouraged me and I'll tell you guys this week 
as many of you have reached out and, and prayed with me or let me know that you're praying with me as I prepared to preach, my heart has been encouraged because I need, we need, the people who stand in this pulpit and regularly give you the gospel need your prayers so that we'll be faithful to God, faithful to the text, faithful to shepherd you according to the word. This is why your elders work diligently and pray earnestly that the clarity of the gospel that's proclaimed from this pulpit will always be faithful to God because where prayer is that long after we're gone, the men who fill this pulpit and come behind us will do the same for the next generation and the next generation until the Lord Jesus returns. So pray for your pastors. Pray for them that they'll be faithful to God. Pray that they'll be diligent in their studies. Pray that the, the words that they study will be first true in their own heart before they ever utter them out of their mouths. David's contentment, in part, is that he need not seek to vindicate himself before his enemies. God has and always will vindicate his own name. So he says in verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That statement, as for me, is a statement of declaration. So we're to see again the contrast between David and his enemies. This statement of resolute confidence of a final hope of vindication. David is saying, let them be satisfied with all they can amass in this life and let them pass it on to the next generation because that is all they're going to get. As for me, let me be satisfied and filled and heaping to overflowing with the satisfaction that only comes through Christ. That only comes from seeing and knowing the one true and living God. So glory waits David, and even as his enemies who surround him to take his life, perhaps he can even hear them. David is satisfied knowing that he will awake and see the face of God. And to see God's face is to receive his blessing. Remember in Psalm 11, verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deed. The upright shall behold his face. Or last week, again, as Ryan led us wonderfully through Psalm 16, and the glories of it. Verse 11, Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. So when I awake, that's resurrection language that David uses there. And just two verses ahead of, before the one we just read, Psalm 16, David writes, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's a statement full of hope. And we have to keep before our mind's eye that that hope that David clings to in that covenant promise-keeping God is ours also in Christ. So David says, I shall be satisfied. A statement of filled in abundance. Psalm 17 began with, hear righteousness in verse 1. And it concludes with the hope to behold righteousness in 15. So this bookend reminds us that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And we only have right standing before God because his perfect obedience to his heavenly father 
purchased it for us on our behalf. What we could not do for ourselves, God in Christ Jesus has made available to us. If you remember over in Revelation 19, there's a picture of rejoicing in heaven. Revelation 19 reminds us that the children of God will rejoice at the just judgment of God. Revelation 19, verses 1 to 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in the heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Savior and glory, uh, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immor- immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. One more, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So brothers and sisters, we are able to rejoice in God's just judgment because he is the faithful one whose vindication comforts his children and condemns his enemies. And we will rejoice at his just judgment. And God will vindicate his name. And he will judge his enemies. And the reason we can rejoice in that is because God is fair. He is just in judging. But he will only look upon us and vindicate our souls if we are in Christ. So in the beginning, we talked briefly about Walter McMillan. Walter McMillan's temporal vindication came in the diligent and pers- came at the diligent work and the persistence of Brian Stephen and Stevenson, his team of attorneys. And Stevenson continues that work for those like McMillan and, there, McMillan, and there's no doubt that that's important and necessary work. But in light of eternity, there's a vindication that is far more necessary, a final vindication resulting in the forgiveness of sin and the peace that passes all understanding. This is the vindication only God can do and he has done through Christ. So let me leave you with this. What about you? Who are you placing your hope in for vindication from your sins? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come to you and we're grateful that you are the vindicating king, that you do justice according to your promises, that you are good and holy and righteous. And through Christ, we can know you and we can trust you. We can hide in the shadow of your wings. And far more than that, Lord, the glories of heaven await where we will be satisfied in your likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.